Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Shackman. In a world where the daily news cycle often feels like an unrelenting storm of political upheaval, authoritarian threats, and societal corruption, it's crucial to remember that these issues didn't just appear out of nowhere. They are the fruits of a multi-generational saga rooted deeply in our history. From the pursuit of power and privilege by the wealthy to the racial underpinnings of our nation's foundation and the ongoing experiments of building a democratic society. In all of this, history isn't just a backdrop. It's a living, breathing influence on everything we experience today. But as we stand in 2023, facing crises that challenge the very core of our democratic ideals, we're compelled to ask, has modern society outpaced the government's ability to adapt? Are our founding principles still relevant, or is it time for a constitution or government 2.0 to navigate us out of these tumultuous times? Today, we're joined by historian Heather Cox Richardson, whose insights illuminate the corridors of time with a clarity that resonates profoundly in our current era. A professor of history at Boston College and acclaimed author, and the voice behind the incredibly successful daily substack Letters from an American. She's the author of a new book entitled Democracy Awakening. Heather Cox Richardson offers not just a recounting of events, but a vital narrative that connects the dots from the past to our present as she examines how America, once a beacon of democracy, now teeters on the brink of autocracy. It is my pleasure to welcome Heather Cox Richardson here to talk about Democracy Awakening, Notes on the State of America. Heather, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm so looking forward to this. Well, thank you so much for being here. Given all of the layers of history we have, and and, and so much of that history that you talk about as a basis for where we are today, does it get to a point where the history itself overwhelms the reality of where we are today? in a way that there, there's no real way out of it without a fundamental shift in how we go about governing or go about looking at the country? Well, I'm not sure history ever overwhelms the present. It's what we do with that history that can make it hard for us to adjust to the things are, that are going on around us. So let's start from the premise that nothing in the future is, is written. The future remains unwritten, and we get to do whatever we want with it. What history does is it gives us a roadmap by telling us how and why societies change. So history is incredibly important to this moment, not only in understanding the pieces of each historical thread that got us here. So you can say, oh, oh, I get what's happening in Mississippi because of what happened in Mississippi then and what happened in Mississippi before that and so on. So you can connect the dots, but also because historians have looked at similar moments and said, oh, What really matters in this sort of a transition is mass movements or is the economy or is, you know, a a great voice coming out of somewhere unexpected. And we know how those those things can change a society and move it forward or backward. So in this moment, it's important not only to understand the individual events that led to the places we are today, but also the ways societies change. And I think that somebody trained in history is is an important voice right now. And that's one of the things that people gravitate toward when they look at the letters from an American. Is there a danger that we rely too much on that history and that we use it to think that because we got through crises in the past and we found ways to, to get beyond whatever the particular crisis was, that we will succeed again this time? Well, 
Well, you know, people take that both ways. They either say, oh, we've been here before, we'll get out, and it's going to be fine. Or they say, oh, we've never been here, and therefore we will not get out. You know, I'm going to go back to that thing I said at first. The future remains unwritten. We can use our past in whichever way we believe is the, the most likely to achieve an end that we want. I would like to think that Americans are going to continue to back their liberal democracy and carry it forward into a new era. And certainly we have faced what seemed insurmountable crises in the past. But what the reason I wrote um, Democracy Awakening is because I do think we're on a knife edge and people could say, oh, this democracy is too hard and, and I'm too invested in my fake reality, the one that's being fed to me in different media channels and from different countries and with, with different emphases on emotions that I care deeply about. And therefore, I'm going to throw out our institutions and the systems that on which this country was based and which one it's going to be is what this 2024 election is all about. How much do we have to look at the frame of of media today and the 24-7 always-on environment that we live in and social media and all the things that go along with it as an element that really changes the dynamic from past historical situations? In the past, the media has always spun things. And always presented material in ways that they thought would turn out certain groups of people. That's that's just the reality. But there is no doubt that in this moment that has become supercharged by the Internet and by, as you say, the 24-hour U.S. media. That being said, I think there is another larger picture that really matters in this moment, and that is really since at least the 1990s, there has been a, a, a group of political thinkers, and they are associated with political thinkers in Russia who've written books about this, who recognize that you could overturn a democracy, not necessarily with guns and tanks, but rather by convincing voters to support uh, 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 or to react to a, a fake reality. To, you could create a, a Uh, what they called it was a a virtual politics or use political technology to create a false reality that people would react to. And in that reacting would undermine their own democracy, which is actually really, you know, an interesting question. How do you get people to vote away their own rights? And what they discovered was the way you did that was you convinced them that their enemies were, you know, um, murdering babies, for example, or doing any number of things that people would find offensive. And crucially, by pitting the ends of a society against the middle, because it's the middle that keeps democracy stable. And that and the ways in which that's been weaponized against the U.S., primarily by Russia, but other but also by other foreign actors and then picked up in the United States by a a small group who are trying to undermine our democracy. That seems to me to be the bigger story of media and the way that people are being played with the creation of a worldview that is not based in reality. And one of the things that that many of us are insisting on in this moment is a reality-based political discourse. So that even if we disagree about how we should react to what is in that media, that we should insist that we are actually dealing with reality. And that would do a lot, I think, to shore up our democracy. And yet there are so many elements out there that are moving in exactly the opposite direction, whether it's deep fakes or the power of AI or or just misinformation in so many new venues. Yes, although there's a difference between misinformation, which is when I make a mistake unintentionally, and disinformation. 
which is when I tell you something I know to be untrue. And, you know, of course, people are pushing back on this. The European Union uh, in the fall passed uh, uh, regulations about disinformation on social media and about the degree to which companies could use private information to collect um, statistics about people so that they could be targeted with disinformation. And in the the week at the end of October, uh, President Biden and uh, Vice President Kamala Harris pushed forward an executive order that would uh, force social media companies to label artificial intelligence, uh, uh, information that was produced by artificial intelligence, so it would have a watermark and also trying to make sure that private information couldn't be weaponized against people. But those are just the beginnings of this regulation. And in contrast to that, you see the the, the flood of disinformation in the United States and other countries as well, but I focus on the United States, over, for example, the Middle East crisis, over the upcoming uh, 2024 election, over what's currently going on in the House of Representatives. And, and that's flooding on a daily basis, and you can see it really taking over places like X, the social media company that used to be Twitter, and other places where people um, believe they're reacting to reality, but they are in fact reacting to disinformation. There's also a sense that after a while, enough disinformation creates exhaustion in the public. Talk about that. Yes, well, that's really quite deliberate. That's one. And in, in when you talk about the creation of a false political reality, there are actually handbooks on how to do that. Um, and, and they, as I say, they originate primarily out of uh, today's Russia, although you can see them and, and their techniques in other countries as well, including the United States. But there are five main ways in which the people who are theorizing how one uses this virtual politics to destroy a democracy work. And they, in those five ways, one of the ways that they talk about is is not to to force people to believe things or even to push what is obviously propaganda, although that's one of them. That's the disinformation is one of the ways to do it. But one of the things that they talk about doing is simply flooding the zone, as Trump ally Steve Bannon put it, flooding the zone with so much crap that people can no longer distinguish what is real and what is not, and they start to say, well, everybody does it. You know, I'm just I I can't deal with this. I don't know who's honest. I don't know who's dishonest. And so I'm going to back away. And that is a deliberate technique. And it's a technique, by the way, that you can see happening in um, places like the House of Representatives in the United States right now, where people on the far right of the Republican Party are repeatedly calling for um, impeachment against President Joe Biden, although there there really is no reason for that talking about indictments, throwing into the mix the kinds of words that former President Trump, who is their chosen uh, leader for the future, have have associated with his name, with the hope that they can go forward in front of voters and say, oh, look, there's really no difference between the two. You know, they're all corrupt. Everybody is is operating in the exact same way. So there's no reason you should reject my candidate based on those things that are, in fact, quite profound weaknesses. So that idea of simply flooding things so that people get exhausted and they walk away is a classic way to undermine democracy and support the rise of an authoritarian. What does history tell us about the most effective ways to fight that? The first most effective way to fight it is to be very, very careful about where you're getting your information and what is reality, you know, what really happened. And people say to me, you know, how can you do that? There's just so much out there. 
it's, it's actually really not that hard when you are looking always to see what has actually been said or actually been done. And this is not necessarily about following certain legacy media because legacy media, in fact, does often report spin rather than reporting what actually happened. But you can find actual speeches, actual documents, actual events, and I try and make sure that they're uh, corroborated in three places. Journalists look for two. I like three because I'm a historian. So that can be done. But also to recognize that any time people are trying to flame up your emotions rather than make an argument, there's probably something there that shouldn't be. So, you know, I used to work at MIT, and one of the things that they used to tell us when it came time to reacting to spam and the, the kinds of, of uh, phone calls you would get saying, oh, you have to do this immediately, is they would say anytime any business tries to say to you, you must do this immediately or something bad will happen, 100% of the time it's going to be a scam or virtually 100% of the time it's going to be a scam. And the same thing is true in media or in social media. If something says you must react immediately with an emotional reaction, the chances are pretty good that they don't think they can convince you with an argument based in fact. So instead, they're going to try and sort of trick you to believe that there is something going on that isn't. And you know, one of my great uh, examples of this was something that used to circulate a lot on right-wing media, was that the, the, the state of Oklahoma was about to be taken over by Sharia law. Well, I used to work in Oklahoma. I was a waitress in Oklahoma. Oklahoma was in no danger of becoming <laughs> a state that was overrun by Sharia law, but it was designed to push the buttons of the evangelical Christians who lived in Oklahoma and the people from away who would look at Oklahoma and go, well, if Oklahoma can, can become you know, run by Sharia law, so can my state, where I've actually got a, a huge number of people who might believe in that. And that sort of hot-button can you believe this is going on, almost always requires that you check to see where that photograph came from, that you check to see what that video is really of, or that you check to see what information is actually there. And that's, um, that's actually you know, one of the things that I find really fascinating about this moment. I understand people don't have a lot of time to do that, but a good rule of thumb is that if you, if you are furious from the beginning, the chances are pretty good it's somebody trying to rile you up. And sometimes in really subtle ways where you, you, something horrific has happened, but who actually did it doesn't become clear until days later when you've already cemented whatever feeling of anger that you, that you began with. And we are in an environment that is emotionally driven more than perhaps at, at other historical times. There does seem to be more extreme emotion out there. Well, we've certainly had that in the past, but there has been really since 1968 a real effort among politicians to focus on emotions rather than right. on reason. And I identified 1968 there because it was really the Nixon campaign of 1968 that quite deliberately, and they said so, we have quotations from this because there was a journalist embedded in that campaign, tried to focus on people's emotions rather than on rational arguments because they said, you know, those are much easier to manipulate than it is to manipulate people's reason. And you have to really talk to people and understand people and argue with people in order to make people understand argument, whereas if you just raise their emotions, 
you can get them to the ballot box faster and to come your way. And that was really quite deliberate when they did that in 1968. And if anybody's interested, one of the things that I find a really fascinating contrast is you can go on YouTube and watch the 1960 debates between Kennedy and Nixon. And they're actually very complicated questions and very complicated answers about what certain congressional committees are doing, about how certain policies will play out on an international stage, you know, and then and then just just eight years later in 1968, you can also see on YouTube the videos for the Nixon campaign, which, by the way, were managed by Roger Ailes, who's going to go on to, to direct the Fox News channel um, that that simply show show photographs that are designed to raise emotions. And then the final tagline is Nixon vote as if your whole world depended on it. And that's really dramatically different from what they were doing just eight years earlier. And of course, we had the emotion that was part of the, the Democratic Convention in 1968. Yeah, and the, the, but the, there's actually a lot more going on with the, with the Democratic Convention and the Republican Convention of 1968, because 1968 was a year of such incredible turmoil in so many ways. And crucially, one of the things that, and this is kind of a, a historical rabbit hole, but I hope you don't mind. It does show how many things affect the way we perceive politics. So what's crucial at first in 1968 is the fact that in the in the Democratic Convention, the convention hall where it was supposed to be held was damaged by fire. So they actually moved the convention into a place that was much more easily accessible and much closer to a residential area in which the mayor of Chicago lived. And in the Republican side, they held their convention in a place where that was accessible only over a couple of bridges that could be shut down. So the Democrats, of course, are in an incredibly demographically vulnerable place, while the Republicans are in a demographically very secure place. So right there is one of the reasons that, that you want to listen to historians over what matters in history is that the physical location of those two conventions gave the Republicans a real heads, a, a real leg up from the very beginning. And then, of course, the Democrats are reacting to something different. Both the Democrats and the Republicans have to grapple that year with the passage three years before in 1965 of the, um, the Voting Rights Act. And the question for both parties was, were they going to incorporate into their their bodies of their party the people of color and the black Americans who were now enfranchised under the Voting Rights Act. And it's 68 where you can see the Republicans really doubling down on the policies of 1964 from Barry Goldwater, with Nixon saying to Strom Thurmond of South Carolina, no, if you come and stay with the Republican Party, you Dixiecrats who don't want desegregation, the federal government will back away from its enforcement of integration in the American South. And and that's the beginning of what's known as the Southern strategy, whereas in the Democratic Party, they are trying to grapple with all all the new voices in the party and try and in, include those voices. And that comes dead up against in Chicago, the old demographic of the, or the old uh, uh, democratic base 
that in fact really is much more union based and much more working class based. And that plays out around the Democratic National Convention with, for example, the yippies on the outside and the 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 working class Democrats and the Democratic cops turning their badges around or taking off their badges and attacking the people who are outside the convention. So you can see in that moment a real snapshot of what the future is going to be for both parties. Are they going to try and be inclusive of women and minorities as the Democrats were trying to be, not successfully at that point? Or are they going to go the direction that the Republicans did, which has left us where we are today? Talk a little bit about this whole notion of of the Southern strategy that has been so much a part of the Republican Party since Nixon, and really it has become so ingrained in the politics of the Republican Party. Well, it didn't have to be. In 1964, the more much more traditional Eisenhower Republican who looked as if he was going to win the nomination crashed and burned because of an extramarital affair. And when that happened, the Republicans nominate Barry Goldwater to be their presidential candidate in that year. And Goldwater had called for the not only the rolling back of the Supreme Court legislation that um, that advanced minority rights, but also he called for rolling back the entire New Deal government that the Democrats had put in place beginning in 1933 and that Eisenhower had made part of his middle way when he went into office in 1953. So there's this whole period of time in which we what developed was called the liberal consensus, the idea that the government had a role to play regulating business and providing a basic social safety net and promoting infrastructure and protecting civil rights. And Goldwater and his people wanted to get rid of that altogether. They wanted to roll that back. So in 64, when he is nominated, he really becomes nominated right after three civil rights workers go missing in Mississippi, and nobody knows where they are. And he is nominated. And when he when when that happens, the people who put him over the top for that nomination are the delegates from South Carolina. And they do it really explicitly with the backing of this idea that that white supremacy must survive in the South. And he strides across the stage and he says, you know, extremism and defense of liberty is no vice. But he's basically saying it's okay to do things like disappear um, uh, uh, voter registration workers, although at that point nobody knew that they had been murdered. There was pretty strong suspicions that nothing good was going on. But he was essentially declaring that he was on that side. Now, it wasn't – and when that happens, of course, Strom Thurmond, who is the leader of the Dixiecrats, the party that – that embraced segregation, very publicly switched away from his former affiliation with the Democrats and with the Dixiecrats and joined the Goldwater team. Now, in 68, when Nixon reaches out to Strom Thurmond and says, basically, we will much more quietly continue these policies, what that does is it brings into the Republican Party these racist former Democrats that had organized as the Dixiecrats, and very quickly they are going to begin to push aside the much more traditional Democrat, I'm sorry, the much more traditional Republicans who really believed in the liberal consensus and really backed civil rights. I mean, remember things like the Voting Rights Act was bipartisan legislation and that Eisenhower had been crucial to putting Earl Warren at the head of the Supreme Court to do things like decide Brown versus Board of Education, which was a unanimous decision, by the way. 
So Nixon begins that turn. And once he has begun that turn, you think about the Nixon years and how terrible, much terrible trouble he got into throughout his term, but especially after the shootings at Kent State in May of 1970, when he loses a lot of that middle middle America that he had brought to his standard with those ads that said, vote like your whole world depended on it, because he made some really heavy-handed statements, essentially initially accusing the students of having brought the shooting on themselves. And with that, with the need to start to bring in new constituencies and to cement constituencies that were resentful of the 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 Um, the college students and the anti-war protesters and the women's rights movement and the people who were trying to move America into a multicultural world, the Republicans under Nixon increasingly doubled down on this idea of they say somebody else is hurting you. And Pat Buchanan, who was a speechwriter both for Goldwater and for Nixon, was particularly good at setting up these straw men. Then, of course, Nixon gets into the trouble that he gets into. And to fast forward, we have um, after um, after Ford and after Carter, we have Reagan really deliberately picking this strand of uh, political thought up with, for example, his welfare queen, who he described as a woman on the south side of Chicago, which was a code term for black, and talking about how she was manipulating the system through dead husbands and through multiple social uh, social welfare programs to earn a very good living without actually doing any work or earning anything. And, and, and by the way, he was actually pointing to a real person who was a murderer. I mean, she was a criminal. She was hardly representative of the liberal consensus. But he managed to cement that into people's minds, along with an initial and a very important campaign stop um, right near uh, Philadelphia, Mississippi, where those same three civil rights workers were murdered and later found buried in a dam. Um, a, a dam made of made of ground, an earthen dam, everybody calls it. Um, so he was really doubling down on that strategy. And once that idea of accusing their opponents of being redistributing wealth from hardworking white people to to undeserving people of color and women who they claimed wanted to wanted abortions so they could work outside the home, once they had done that. That became a a more and more extreme position on the Republican Party, especially after the rise of talk radio in about uh, 1987, after the fall of the Fairness Doctrine, and especially after the establishment of the Fox News Channel in 1996, when you had news people or you had uh, personalities who looked as if they were talking about the news. They were in sets that looked like news sets, but they were, in fact, Uh, defended in court as being opinion speakers who were advancing this idea that black Americans and brown Americans and feminist women were trying to destroy American society through socialism. And it became such a such a firm part of today's Republican Party that, of course, the former president keeps attacking those people who are trying to hold him account um, to account for what certainly appears to be uh, breaking of the law as being Marxists and socialists. So there's a long traditional thread that runs through that Republican Party of today that reaches all the way back to at least the 1950s. And when you look at somebody like Pat Buchanan, there's a direct line to to Steve Bannon and Trump and, and, and that angry populist message. Yes, there is, although they come from very different uh, eras hmm. and very different backgrounds. I suspect um, that 
Buchanan would be horrified to be lumped in with Steve Bannon. I could be wrong about that. <laughs> but yes, that idea of whipping up a base in order to – and well, you can see right there, Spiro Agnew, who was Nixon's vice president, actually called it positive polarization. They wanted to split the, the American population because then they believed there would be a positive outcome. That is – people would turn out to vote for their candidate and beat the other side. And that, of course, is not what be, you know, was, was not um, necessarily a direct link to what I was talking about earlier, the idea of creating this virtual reality. But it certainly runs parallel to it, if not having some significant overlap, because, of course, there is significant overlap between the Nixon campaign of um, – of 68 and then of 72 by the fact that people like Roger Stone and Paul Manafort were parts of that campaign as well as Roger Ailes and of course went on to influence the campaign of Donald Trump in 2016. And the one thing we can't forget, we're we're just about out of time, but that we can't forget is the amount of violence that was part of that period. Yes. The amount of violence in the in the 60s, for sure, we've had very we've had violence in America periodically. The the 1850s, the 1880s, and 1890s really jump out. The 1920s, especially the 1960s. But but I always like to remind people we are in an extraordinarily violent period today, an extraordinarily violent period today, in which Americans are dying by gun violence at really truly horrific rates. And while some of those things that tend to make the news, people do recognize them as political violence. What all of them have in common, or virtually all of them have in common, because of course more than half of our mass shootings are rooted in domestic violence, is they are rooted in the concept that some people have the right to control the actions of others. And if they can't do it in, through, through voting, or they can't do it through discussion, or they can't do it from the rules that we all live under, they're simply going to commit violence to make it happen. And I think there is a larger societal statement in that that ties together the horrific political violence we're seeing nowadays, but also with it, the, the domestic violence that is also rampant and causing so much loss of life and and loss of, um, you know, anybody who is wounded in one of these mass shootings, either psychologically or physically, is also terribly scarred. And and it fascinates me as a historian that many people say to me, you know, when is it going to start getting violent? And I keep saying it already is. And the fact that that somehow seems isolated from the larger picture of what's going on today, I, I find fascinating. And I promise that any history of this period in 150 years is at least going to start with the extraordinary violence of this time, if not, at least going to mention it, if not start with it. And why do you think that is, that people don't recognize it because it's not political violence per se? Um, I, I think probably it goes back to what you were talking about before. There is so much out there and it's so hard to connect so many dots that we are awash in material all the time and it simply becomes exhausting. And there is so much else that you also must pay attention to that, that has become, you know, part of, of uh, the stream in which we swim simply because, you know, you can't already, you can't wet a fish. It's already wet. 
But if you think, for example, of some of the extraordinary statements that have come out of former President Trump lately about, for example, holding the former chief of joint uh, chief of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, responsible for what he considers treason because he was not personally loyal to Donald Trump. He was instead loyal to the country, and therefore he should pair the uh, pay the penalty for execution, which the former president identified as execution. That's a headline story for at least two years, and it didn't even make it above the fold in a number of places in legacy media. That's simply astonishing. And, you know, one of the things that I try and do is highlight the stories that I think historians will care about, and I promise you they're going to care about that one as well. Heather Cox Richardson, her new book is Democracy Awakening, Notes on the State of America. Heather, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. Thank you.